This is The Shift Podcast. Today on The Shift Daily Podcast, Canadian music expert Alan Cross takes us through the history of bootleg music and gives us a sneak peek of his new true crime podcast, which is wrapped around music, the stories of murder, extortion, and other crimes in and around records, rock stars, and the music industry. Are you okay with Netflix on the podcast? What about energy drinks, too? And can computer viruses be hidden in legitimate-looking ads online? You see something you're interested, you click it, poof, virus. Hank the Hacker helps us understand malvertising. It's malware mixed into advertising and other ways hackers can trick you into clicking a malicious link. All of this and more on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Back in the day, all good stories start with back when I was your age. Back in the day, we used to tape our favorite radio DJs and then get mad at them when they would talk over the intro of Tears for Fears or something, right? And then we would tape these, you know, mixtapes. We would copy them. We would share them. Essentially, what was really happening was bootlegs of pieces. What's a bootleg? Well, bootleg is sort of an unauthorized copy. That might be too simplistic, but it usually comes in a bootleg with some sort of ulterior motive that's more grand than I made a copy of it. And uh, bootlegs today, we're sort of seeing that happen in AI, these sort of AI songs that are being created that sound like Drake or sound like um, Johnny Cash singing Barbie Girl. I mean, that's kind of bootleg adjacent in my mind. So what comes next in the world of bootlegs with all the uh, technology changing? Alan Cross has a great story uh, about that and so much more uh, that you can get on all of our platforms, including the Global News website. Um, Alan Cross, hello, welcome back. Good to be here. Bootlegs. Some people have made their careers off of it. Others have had their careers get killed by it. Where do we go with that? Well, let's let's start with our definitions. Uh, a bootleg recording is an unauthorized recording made by somebody other than the record label or the band or the management that is then reproduced and distributed amongst fans. Uh, back in the day, these were vinyl records that were made in very, very small numbers through surreptitious pressing plants. The first really big one was called Great White Wonder, uh, released by Ken and Dub, a couple of guys in uh, California who found some Bob Dylan recordings that were not authorized, were not released, and they sold that out of the trunk of their car. Uh, later, we went into um, compact discs where there were certain places around the world where you could get these recordings. Um, Germany was one for a while. Italy was another. Uh, San Marino would be one. Then we moved to Russia and Ukraine and China and Indonesia, Brazil, Uruguay, Paraguay, Argentina, places like that. And what we were getting there are again, songs that were recorded or recordings made in a studio or live recordings that were never intended to be released to the general public, but somehow leaked out and then were sold by these people. The other thing that we have are counterfeit records. Counterfeit records look like the real thing and are passed off as the real thing. For example, uh, if you were to go on to Arab Street or um, in, in Moscow, or if you were to go to, let's say, uh, the Silk Market in Beijing, China, you would find a bunch of CDs, or at least you used to find a bunch of CDs that looked like the real thing, but actually weren't. They were just fakes. They were knockoffs, just like that Prada bag that you thought you were buying. So we have two different things. We have bootlegs and we have counterfeits. Counterfeits were used by an awful lot of organized crime uh, groups to raise money. And, uh, you know, the I, uh, the IRA used bootlegs and, and counterfeits. Um, a number of cartels in, in South America used uh, counterfeits. But what we're really concerned about here are bootlegs, which contain, again, material that was never meant for public consumption. So it's kind of like buried, suppressed gold. And... Um, fans will go to any lengths or used to go to any lengths to be able to get these bootleg recordings. With the rise of digital music, there you don't have to you know, know a guy at a record store who kept these things under the counter or in the back room for the special clients. 
Um, that's the way it used to be. That's the way I bought an awful lot of bootlegs. Now you can go online and there are any number of unauthorized recordings that are available. It's very hard to staunch the flow of these things. And record companies and bands have basically embraced the bootleg idea, um, often releasing official bootlegs, which basically are the same thing, but done through official channels, and in box sets where you have all these unreleased tracks, alternate versions, alternate mixes, and so on that you can now make money from because, well, you're, you're selling them legitimately. This happened in all kinds of different ways, Alan. It happened in a guy slipped a copy, took a copy before he delivered it, um, kind of like your Prada bag example of the design was sent to the factory and someone took a copy of the design and then started to make the real ones, sold the design, a bunch of people make other ones. Now, yeah, there was a... There were there was a story uh, of a record plant in in the uh, southern U.S. where there were a couple of guys inside that were uh, taking those discs and uh, and burning them, putting them online. So that's how those leaks occurred back yeah. in those days. Yeah, but again, there's with, lots with of the bootlegs to this, though. Yeah, boot, bootlegs where you know people would would um, you know record shows illegally. Yeah. Sometimes they would record them in person. Sometimes they would record them off the radio. There were a lot of instances instances where bootlegs were made when uh, an artist performed a live concert on the radio. That was simply recorded and and put out there. I mean, I have an I, uh, an REM bootleg um, that was broadcast on uh, the Edge in Toronto back in the CFNY days. That ended up being a bootleg because we we just you know we recorded the show and broadcast it live. Somebody recorded it off the radio and turned that into a bootleg. Wow. Uh, then um, there would be people who had inside connections at recording studios and would be able to gain access to tapes that uh, were supposed to be either destroyed or recorded over. There were even some recording studios that were very, very lax in the way they got rid of old tapes. Yeah, the they dumpster just, diving part. Tell me they, that. Exactly. They would throw them out in the garbage and and all you had to do is is you know do a little bit of dumpster dive and find these you know big reels of tape and it was free bootlegs yeah. and and people wondered how did this ever get out to the general public well it was easy you threw them in the garbage and yeah, somebody nobody deleted it them. yeah yeah that's wild yeah and so i mean imagine that you go and you go into a dumpster behind a studio there's a bunch of reel to reel tapes you put them on you put play on the background you hear a bunch of dubs over dubs you hear all these edits and cuts and these things that cut off then all of a sudden an hour into the tape or something, you hear this artist singing a version of a song that no one's ever heard before. And um, and then, I mean, wow, that's gold. I mean, it was, and technically with the laws, some of the laws, if once it's in the dumpster, then that's free game in some places. In, in some places, Ethically, yeah. no, and but. You threw it out. Yeah. It means that you didn't need it, didn't want it, so therefore anybody can have it. That's crazy. Uh, there were... Other territories, like the UK, for example, that uh, the copyright law is written in in such a way that if you record, if you a, li a live performance recorded by somebody can be sold without punishment. So uh, you know, every time I go to the UK, I go to some record store on on uh, Berwick or Newell Street, and uh, I'll find some vinyl of a, of a Sex Pistol show from 1977 that the record company can't do anything about it because it's not covered by UK law. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a, in the Caribbean, there was a store, it's no longer there, but I would visit every year. And this guy would have all these wild bootlegs from Europe that was just like, wow, I'm, you know, Oasis, Nine Inch Nails, Smashing Pumpkins, Nirvana. Really? I bought them all. That's cool. But there's magic to that. I mean, as a fan, there's some real magic to being able to kind of get into the sound of that dark hole in the ground concert that had 17 people or something that you, there's no way you could have got into. And, you know, that's where those ethics kind of get tangled up in all this because it's for the fan. I mean, that's cool. Right. The, the majority of buyers of bootlegs already have every single thing that they can buy legitimately through the label from the artist. Mm -hmm. They want more. And bootlegs were a way to get more. And because they were produced in such limited numbers, I mean, 100 copies, 500 copies, maybe 1,000 copies, uh, it, it was something that you could show to your friends or just keep in a sort of secret place because you know you had something that no, almost no one else had. Okay, AI. You take some of these voice places now that'll duplicate people's voices that are on there. I mean. 
I, I'm not popular enough that anybody would care to do mine, but yours would be there. I mean, I'm sure that someone could create an app. All the Alan Cross audio that's out there, the Shane Hewitt audio. If somebody wanted to, there's an AI, I'm sure, that could try to pull it off. And now imagine a world, okay, there's the theft part, like you said, that sort of that just stealing stuff, uh, duplicating, counterfeit. But then if you go and you were to say have an AI that created a grungy underground version of recordings, pretended it was a bootleg. I mean, it's one thing to take AI and create a, a fake song, but that's potentially quite a market if you say that, hey, this was recorded in Steve's basement in 1994 of your favorite band. I mean, this is where this slope goes from fan cool to ugly. Yeah, yeah, there there are a couple, uh, we've talked about this before, we're in the, we're in the wild, wild west when it comes to artificial intelligence and music. The technology is far, far ahead of where the law is. Let me give you an example. A 20-year-old computer science student in the UK created a, a, an app called Voiceify, which you can get in the uh, Apple Store and in the Android Store. And Voiceify has a number of very well-known voices in its catalog, everybody from Barack Obama to Taylor Swift to Johnny Cash to you know whoever. And what you can do is create a chatbot where the chatbot will talk to you, audio will talk to you in the voice of your star. So if you wanted to have a, you know, it sounds pretty lonely uh, and pretty, pretty incel, but you could have a, a conversation with this chatbot, uh, which has assumed Taylor Swift's voice. The other thing that you can do with Voiceify is you can feed it um, addresses to various, any kind of YouTube, YouTube audio, YouTube song, for example, and you could get somebody in the bank, in the in the uh, in the voice bank, to sing something really inappropriate. For example, uh, you could get Taylor Swift to sing death metal. Mm. Um, and right now, if the way the way the UK law is written, there's nothing illegal about any of this. Yeah, nine inch nails closer, Taylor Swift. You could, yes, you could, and mm. it, again, it's it's very very simple. Um, and even you know the the artist would be a, a you know artist involved would be very annoyed. The rights holders and publishers would be very annoyed. But right now, there is nothing in British law that says you can't do that. Mm -hmm. There's another site called Moises M O I S E S that uh, is trying to do the same ish sort of thing, but they are licensing uh, these voice packs. So. Um, that may be the way we go, or it may not. Hmm. Uh, again, you know, if you're an artist, if you're a Taylor Swift, the last thing you want to do is have the last thing you want to see is somebody abusing your voice by repurposing it in a way that you don't approve of. Yeah, it erodes the brand or something like that. But if we go back in um, in time, I mean, Spotify is such a great example. Spotify asked for forgiveness before permission, being a a business from another country, they delivered music online, they streamed it, they did all the things that they knew that they were going to have to do. They even got dinged at one point for where they got their music from. Uh, then as they came into North America, whatever, then they negotiated the rights deals to do the licensing and share things. So they were so big at the time, they had a lot of leverage. Yeah, that, that, that's is true. Is this where we're going with this? Is that it's going to take somebody becoming so big to recreate the standard? Well, again, we go back to what we saw in the world uh, of music with sampling back in the 80s and 90s. You know, the idea of excising a little piece of somebody else's music for creation of something brand new that you created, that you um, had authorship over. Uh, and, and there was a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, around that until the law caught up with it. People were sampling anything and everyone and not asking for permission and not um, paying for the privilege of sampling these uh these songs that's all gone uh if you want a sample you gotta pay you gotta ask permission and if you're refused and you go ahead and do it anyway well you can be sued but this was a matter of of the technology and the courts uh finding equal ground and for ways to police this sort of thing and for for methods of uh of seeking retribution and justice so from your look at the your definition that you gave us in the beginning alan cross the you know, the, the counterfeit, because to me, I think that this is sort of where counterfeit and bootlegging uh, start and finish a little bit in the future of this, if we're looking at having AI take part of this, because, you know, bootlegging a, 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 a concert, an acoustic version of a song from someone's basement, uh, 
versus someone creating or using a, a similar voice. I mean, that to me feels like it's a fine line. Of course, I reserve the right to change that opinion as this unfolds, but I, where does that land for you? Well, it's a third thing. We yeah. have bootlegs, we have counterfeits, and now what we have are voice clones. Yeah. And that's the term we're using. So I see that. Um, how do we regulate, how do we police voice clones? There are artists like Grimes, for example, who has said, hey, use my voice with my permission to create some new art. But then there are other people who say, no, you are ripping me off, my sound, my brand, my experience, my talent, uh, cut it out. So mm -hmm. we'll, we'll see where this goes. There are lawyers working on this right now. And in fact, there's just something that came out earlier today where there was an, a music and AI program um, that uh, Amazon had just invested uh, $4 billion in. And today, Universal Music Group sued them. Wow. So again, you know, Amazon thinks this is a good idea, enough to put $4 billion into it, but Universal Music Group, the biggest record label in the world, doesn't like the idea. So they're suing this company that has Amazon's backing. So the big boys are really getting into this. Uh, does it create music in a way that, you know, I mean, music is the, there's always two sides to it, right? Speaker and listener. Um, is the, you know, in music, is it the same where in our listening, if we enjoy it and we like it, is there anything, as long as everyone is compensated or whatever, this AI becomes music that we like, or is that a problem because it's not coming from a human? I mean, well, so far, um, there doesn't seem to be much of a, a market for AI. There have been a couple of attempts to sign AI artists, um, but they haven't really gone anywhere just yet. Um, if you go on Spotify or any of the streaming music services, you you, you can go to AI-generated songs or playlists, and they're not very popular. So right now, people have not demonstrated any sort of appetite for this kind of music. People want authentic, real human music so far. When we're willing to pay $2,000 for a nosebleed ticket at a concert, I think that leads you to believe that they don't just want it to come from a computer. No, they don't. Yeah. That's neat. It's fascinating. I think this is, uh, it's interesting. I like the way you described it, Alan, the most of being a third category of a clone, because it's certainly not counterfeit, because it's not the original voice, right? Um, it's not. And you're, you're, you're getting this person, this to sing something brand new. Yeah. So it's, it's, you're, you're passing it off maybe as that person, but not necessarily. It could be that you're trying to make an artistic statement, which, you know, for, for example, you could get, um, I don't know, you could get Martin Martin Luther King Jr. to to do something uh, that is very on brand with whatever Dr. King did, but repurposing it in such a way that his message and his voice reach an entirely new audience. So you can make a, you know a justification for that if you are careful. Careful. Maybe it's like how we're supposed to designate ads as a hashtag ad or a hashtag clone sort of legality. I don't know if that would work, but it seems like it's a start. Well, there are people that are saying that, yes, if you have artificial intelligence components to a, a certain song, it has to be labeled as such. Yeah. Yeah. Well, who gets paid? <laughs> the, well, that's chip, the chip it, maker? <laughs> well, that, again, don't even get started on who is the person that's that that owns an artificial intelligence creation is it the person who who programmed the, the the app is it the person who wrote the app is it the app itself uh right now most performing arts organizations recognize music that is only created by a human and the junos and the grammy awards uh, will not entertain any sort of nominations that uh involve a, an artificial intelligence creation Human voices are the new bootleg records. I will link you to Alan Cross's website because I can't link you to the news one. So I might as well send you to Alan's. <laughs> so we can go learn more of what he's up to. New podcast. You've got a new one that you're kicking off. It's This is different for you. I want to get this out before we're done because this really matters. You've worked hard. Yeah, it's called Uncharted Music and May... Oh, sorry. Uncharted Crime and Mayhem in the Music Industry. It's, it's a true crime podcast. And what we're going to do starting the 24th, which is when uh, the first podcast drops is we are going to spend an awful lot of time talking about bad behavior, murder, crime, the mob, plane crashes, uh, and Ooh. psychotic people and stalkers and all kinds of stuff uh, every two weeks. So yeah, Uncharted, mu um, crime and mayhem in the music industry, 
pre-order now on uh, your your favorite podcast platform. Okay, there you go. Curious cast out to CA for more. Um, the ongoing history of new music, of course, is the music uh, podcast. He's a busy guy, Alan Cross. Uh, can't wait to hear it. That's going to be cool. I think that's a really cool angle on a You're, music you, podcast. That's I'm going to tell you that that even even the, though the podcast has not been uh, released yet, uh, there are two, maybe three TV podcasts. Uh, production companies that are interested i bet there are i can't wait to hear it well we'll share it when it comes out too so we'll get you two or three solid listens plus uh, that uh, we have one shift header named shirley she's in manitoba i'm pretty sure she'll listen too oh she will that's alan's mom thanks for being here bud you bet thanks this is the shift podcast Are you, are you, are you, okay, 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 are you okay with, share your thoughts on these stories, 877-399-9898, some stories that might make you ponder, are you okay with Netflix? Netflix, yes, I am, I'm not okay with the price, it's, it's very expensive, but I will, I, of all the competitors that have come into play, uh, Netflix, I would say, still holds the key for the most consistently strong original content. And variety. Variety. They have the best user interface. Mm-hmm. They have the most consistent technological performance. Like, I love Crave, for example. Crave has some of my favorite TV shows, movies on it. I have crashes and freezes with it. Yeah. All the time. Yeah, Amazon right? Prime is impossible interface to use. Oh, I, you would think that f- for the company that basically owns and stores half the internet, that their UI would be, user interface would be so much better, but it's not. Uh, it's rough. But Netflix, and I also like that Netflix doesn't do channels. It's just, you pay for this, you get everything, watch it, Yeah, you know? And so they've, you know, the original, and I'd still say that they're the top if i had to pick one they would be the one i'd pick but it's it is getting to a point where the price is getting very difficult you know, it's very in, uh, in prohibitive for us to 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 use it because it's adding up adding up adding up now here's the thing back in the day oh maybe you get to this did you get into the sale thing later on in this or are we doing that later yeah we'll save the blockbuster bit blockbuster and netflix they have a interesting history now netflix takes movies and TV and turns it all onto digital so you can watch it. It's convenient. It's easy to use. Their library is very, very big. And I would say it's probably the best. I feel like I've got to the end of Netflix at times, but they really do it. And they're taking everything they're doing and they're going to turn it into a brick and mortar physical store. Dubbed Netflix House that according to Bloomberg are expected to open up probably here and in other cities, in 2025. Beyond that, we don't know too much about the plans, except that they'll almost certainly be tied in some way to Netflix content. They'll feature food, merch, and some sort of experiential component, like, say, the Squid Games thing. And that's a fairly impressive thing, considering that Netflix is pretty much the only streamer that makes money at the moment. Okay, so opening up a store, what would you sell at the store? It seems like... We're going full circle back in the old stores. That was KTLA, by the way. So how full circle are we going exactly? Imagine the perfect video store. It would have a great selection, right? Right. Over 10,000 videos. Three evening rentals, so no rush, no hassle. Fast checkout. 24-hour quick drop return. Open late every night. Well, the perfect video store... Welcome to Blockbuster Video. ...is popping up all over the country. There's one near you. Thank you. <laughs> Needless to say, Blockbuster knows very well the challenges that come with a physical store, considering there's one left, I think. So the, uh, the this tweet yeah. was sent out. Oh, boy. Should we tell Netflix how this ends? Question mark. <laughs> Blockbuster posted on Twitter, X. And uh, in response to this news, by the way, now, there are very few details about what this is going to look like. Netflix is foray into brick-and-mortar stores. A lot of people are speculating on it. Josh Simon, Netflix vice president of consumer products, told Bloomberg the locations will sell merch, merchandise and themed food, and offer immersive experiences based on Netflix shows, which is, I get that part. That's cool. They're going to sell merch. There's a bunch of stores that are already selling all the merch, so they might as well take all the money. Why not? Sell their own. Yeah. 
the irony of all of it is that Blockbuster had the opportunity to buy Netflix in the very beginning and said, nah, won't work. Then Netflix basically crushes Blockbuster. And now Netflix is opening up their version of a Blockbuster store. Mm-hmm. If the brick and mortar fails, they still make money. They don't lose money on their streaming, unlike Disney and most of the other. Do we lose them again? We lost Ray. Netflix has their audience. Oh, he's back it started again. growing wow. again. That's fun. And they could try this out with a couple of stores, see if it works, and sell some stores and, and just only set them up in big touristy towns like LA and New York and mm-hmm. you know something like that. I think they're probably going to make this work. I think you're right. It is. I think it's a genius idea. And the fact that they're going to sell um, you know shirts and, and I'm assuming shirts and all the things, it's, it's really, really smart. And I, I, we're seeing an awful lot of retailers now that they've been able to get a grip on what online plus brick and mortar balance looks like they're starting to figure it out that part's cool and um i mean so i think this is a good natural progression for it the part that gets me is that it was always going to be uh cheap there was never going to be commercials it was streaming and now they're basically gone full circle and pulled us back into the very beginning and it costs more and it's you can get it with commercials and you can do all these things so I, did, I'm, I think we're suckers. I think we're suckers. But it goes to prove to me that shopping is a thing. Like in person, mm-hmm. people want the tactile experience. They want to feel like they belong to a sense of community. And that's, that's, what, that's what they want. I, it's such a key important piece in all of this. I hope they want it because that's what I've basically built everything in my life on. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. I love it. Well, it'll be cool. I think it'll be cool, especially if you got, like, stars showing up at Netflix stores to do autograph signings of those books or whatever. I mean, this could could be really cool for people. Are you okay with... Oh, my God, energy drinks. Oh, we should have got the uh, Night of the Roxbury. Was it Night of the Roxbury with the Chris Catan one? The cocaine Uh, one? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They they were on a different kind of energy. Yeah. (laughs) I should buy a boat. Questions, questions, questions. Have a question. Um, question. I should buy a boat. I can't. Uh, I can't do some energy drinks. I can do. I can do a few of them. Mm-hmm. Like Red Bull. I like the small cans. I don't get the big cans mm. unless it's absolutely necessary. I had that phase in high school where where it was cool to drink Monster Energy Drink or yeah, my DOS, son, my son, the yeah. cool bottles. But uh, they just make me feel so weird. Yeah, I get the shakes really bad, and I drink a lot of coffee, but there's something about that concentrated juice that just doesn't work for me. I have not had a whole lot of Red Bull, but I'm pretty sure that I spent a few years, that's what I put in my vodka when I was DJing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just so you know, it was a good mix. It tastes good, but it's my brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay. And, uh, so that's the thing. My son and the energy drinks, all of his buddies, multiple energy drinks. It's not good. Now we've talked about energy drinks a lot this year. Uh, this report, by the way, was from June of this year. Pediatricians say high levels of caffeine from some energy drinks can lead to anxiety, insomnia, headaches, and chest pain. Dr. Anna Banerjee says with youth, they also may not drink just one. And while it may help them for a time, it's not sustainable or healthy. If you fill yourself up with these caffeine drinks, caffeinated, high-energy drinks, you're not eating as much healthy food. What you really want is food. The level of caffeine in energy drinks ranges, with some like Red Bull having 80 milligrams, while Rockstar has 160. By comparison, a cup of tea has about 40 milligrams, but others, like 5-Hour Energy, have 200 milligrams of caffeine, not only exceeding what is recommended for youth under 18, but the amount allowed in energy drinks in Canada. He says as he takes a drink of coffee while the clip runs. I'm a hypocrite. (laughs) Well, um, more energy drink scandals and recalls to report on. The government of Canada has issued a recall warning for a number of brands selling caffeinated drinks. The warning issued on Friday notes that energy drinks may be unsafe due to their caffeine content and labeling issues. On its website, the federal government cautioned people not to consume, use, sell, serve, or distribute recalled products. It also noted that the recall was based on brands. Recall was because brands were not in compliance with standards on caffeine content and proper labeling. More than 30 brands are included in the recall. 
30, including Monster, G Fuel, and Prime. Now, Prime we've talked about on here. That was not supposed to be there ever. Canada's maximum caffeine content is set at 180 milligrams per serving. Labels need to be both in English and en français. And drinks need to have their required cautionary statements on them. According to the federal government, anyone who thinks they became sick from consuming a recalled product should contact their health care provider. It added that recalled products should be thrown out or returned to the location where they were purchased. Okay. But isn't that their job? Wasn't that their job? That was their job. I have a theory. Okay. I have a theory. Okay, so Prime Energy Drink, we talked about that over the summer. That was the YouTuber uh, brand that uh, was being sold illegally in Canada. It was an energy drink that got into, you know, specialty stores, imported from the States, sold without regulation. It got recalled because it was way, I think, double the limit. I don't think there's any limits on that in the States. There's like none. There are none. There are none. So that they were very much not okay. And there was a lot of attention brought to that. It had big names attached to it. Lots of kids were drinking it. I think that Health Canada and all of the groups probably, you know, they did this top up in the summer of here are the recalls. And then we're like, okay, we don't need to worry about it. And then this thing happens with prime and then they go oh maybe this is bigger than we think and then they actually take a deep look and that's how we find out that 30 brands went under the radar i think that you give them too much credit i think that (laughs) what happened in the uh boardroom was yeah hey so someone said this thing's got a lot of caffeine oh my god it's got a lot of caffeine it's got a lot of caffeine and then someone went well, that was Steve's job. No, that's not my job. That was Ryan's job. No, no, that's not my job. That was your job. And somebody went, well, whose job is this? Has nobody been looking at this? Oh, crap. We better check these out. I think it's more along the lines of how things like that go. Yeah. I mean, this is their job. I think of all the, all the people who started businesses and tried to create a business in any industry, but they got shut down because of some sort of regulation. And printing money these companies have been literally printing money for themselves most of which are not canadian companies and taking that money out of the country that is that is the core of what the government's supposed to do when it comes to e-commerce is protect the dollar and protect the people i mean there's two there's that's essentially the government's job protect the people and in canada that includes health you know, protect our borders and protect our money. That's it. You do those three things. I mean, hello. <laughs> hey, at least we can thank Logan Paul for starting Something? the domino chain that got us to have better awareness of energy drinks. Yeah. Thanks, Logan. And I thank Red Bull and any cheap vodka I can put in it. <laughs> This is the Shift Podcast. System breach. What just happened? Someone hacked me. You know, I've never thought about it that way, Hank, that, I mean, your dad was part of that band Crowbar and, and wrote that song and, and but you ended up on Psych- Psychedelic Sundays. That was just a coincidence, but it actually, in hindsight, it kind of looks genius. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Wish we could take credit for it. That's cool. I mean, you grew up around all that, right? I mean, you were, th- that was your life was being around all kinds of Canadian rockers. That's normal for you. And then somehow you turned into a hacker. Like, that's weird. Oh man. I, I always tell people I had a blast growing up with my dad. He... He used to bring me to different shows, and of course, I would get to hang out backstage, and I got to see uh, see him get inducted into the Singer and Songwriters Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. So lots of fun growing up with him. And I, I think his creative side and, of course, his, uh, his extra freedom is, is kind of what led to me becoming a hacker. Yeah, maybe, hey? Kelly J um, is how I guess most public knows your dad's name, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. This is cool. I think this is uh, this is this is kind of a fun little time. We've never really talked about it that way before. But anyway, now um, this uh, little uh, rock and roll nerd became a computer nerd, and is a white hat hacker. What that means is that Hank's kind of like a locksmith. He works on making sure that the locks work, that you can't get into the locks. That's what he does. And the black hat hacker would be the uh, the the 
well, crooks. And then the gray hat hacker is the people that kind of walk the line about maybe being good one day, but probably making a little side action on there too, a little side hustle. So those are the definitions of what hackers are. Now, Hank, I explained to the shift heads here as we got started that we know don't click on stinky links on email. We know if you go to a website that looks funky, don't continue. We know that if you get the text message, you have to read the URL string so you know that, um, uh, I don't know, scotiabank-banking-canada.ru is not the Scotiabank website. Like, we've learned all of these things. But when you go to your favorite website and you want to buy winter tires and you go click that link for winter tires because you're like, hey, you know, get one for the price of, get four for the price of one. That's a deal. 75% off. I'm doing it. Well, in today's world, that actually might not be a deal. That actually could be bad news. Is that what we're actually seeing here? Absolutely. And, you know, what, what I'm thinking of in particular when when you're talking is is punny code or, or homoglyphs. And what that means is if, if nobody knows what that is, which I don't totally don't expect anyone. to. I don't. So I'll be the first one to put my hand up on that one. Explain, please. It, it's basically a way that cyber criminals can disguise a URL to look exactly like a legitimate URL. And uh, so we do phishing engagements, and I was sending one of my other testers uh, a link and, in one of these ethical tests, and the the website looks exactly the same. Uh, even even I was kind of sitting there like, where is the difference? And it's it's scary because the encodings, when you look at a URL that's created with Punnycode or homoglyphs, the the L might be uh, an encoded character but it looks totally normal so what cyber criminals are actually doing now is they'll use these characters that that look normal but replace other characters they'll go in they'll purchase a domain and they'll actually get a google advertisement and they'll redirect users to malicious websites and it, it's kind of a technique that's not not very new, uh, you know. While while the abuse of punny code and and homoglyphs isn't entirely new, would that be as simple um, as saying, you know, um, what could we use? Well, if you did, uh, that's probably not a good one. I was going to say shiftheads.ca, um, and maybe the I is a one, but that's probably pretty obvious. But you know, if there's an L that is a one, like some of those basic ones that we see from, you know, those old school back in the day ones where you're you know, just trying to distract people and they don't quite realize that it's different. Is that too simplistic? This is that one, that method's ugly older brother. Like okay. this is it. So it takes the I, for example, in shift heads and it replaces it with another I. It's just not the real I that we're used to typing on our keyboard. Oh, I and, see. Uh, because of this, someone else can actually register that domain and host a, a malicious ad, which is being oh. called malvertising. So like an I from another alphabet or something like that, kind of. Yeah. One example, and this is also a little bit different, but one uh, really good example would be swapping out a letter for a letter from the like Cyrillic alphabet. So the Russian alphabet, for example. Um, and then kind of using that to trick people into clicking on the link. And what they'll do in this case is instead of like they'll target users that are trying to download or look for different software tools like PDF converters and password managers. Um, and what the, they'll do is when they identify that a user is real, it's not a bot, you're on your computer or whatever, they'll actually bring you to a malicious copy of i'm i'm going to use adobe pdf for example it'll bring you to a malicious copy of that website and then offer a download for this pdf viewer um, and it looks exactly the same acts exactly the same but the the software that you're downloading actually has malware attached to it as well so it behaves like a pdf converter mm -hmm. but but it has malware okay so malware being uh, simply put a virus for your computer um yeah the okay so what are some of these things that we need to watch out for because pdfs used to be 
nasty. Like Flash used to be nasty for what it used. You could mm-hmm. hide inside it. Now PDFs have become a little bit better, but they still. And the reason why for the non-computer people is some of these pieces of software that creates documents like PDFs, they have little scripts that run in the background. Um, I don't know if you've ever opened up a spreadsheet and I'll ask you, do you want to run macros and stuff like that? Like there can be command scripts running in the background. And even if you go, you need to know this. We've never even talked about this, Hank. If you go get a Google Sheets template for free online, they can put a little tracker in there and they can track how much you're using it, when you're using it, everything else. Now you can very easily remove that tracking code, but there are scripts running in the background here. Like free is never free. And what kinds of documents do we need to watch out for in today's world? Is it just PDFs and, and doc, Microsoft documents, or what do we need to watch? In, in this case, in particular, it's software, but I, I love your explanation because I'm, I'm immediately thinking of all the times I saw, um, you know, actual pieces of ransomware getting delivered to a company disguised as a template like a document with scripts in the background or a a resume in one case actually but what we're seeing here is they'll actually disguise it as an executable so it would look like um, i'm going to use a password manager for example say i go to google.com right now and i search key pass password manager download And there's a a real website, keypass.com, but above that top top result on Google, we see another one, and it says sponsored next next to it, but it also says keypass.com. The reality is that this uh, sponsored listing could actually be a malicious keypass website offering a download which will act like a password manager but it'll also steal all of my passwords in the background. So it's important when, and I'm sure this will be a little bit familiar to some viewers, when you're Googling for, you know, Notepad++, or if you're Googling for password manager download or or PDF converter download or something, not to um, just download anything, and especially in terms of avoiding this malvertising technique to avoid the links that have the word sponsored next to them because they may very well be malicious. Okay, so you have, you go to your Google, you see the top ads or sponsored ads, the top results, often the same one. Say if you're searching for your winter tires, I'll keep using that example, that's such a great example. So now we see that that's there and we see that, you know, Joe's Tire Company is number one, but it's also number four because one's an ad, one's not an ad. In today's world of AI, Hank, I, I had a run-in on Instagram where someone had obviously run an AI on me and put together a bunch of different pictures of me and different profiles and turned it into a scammy page. And so it, with the world of AI today, especially with the power that Google's got behind it, you're telling me that Google AdWords and their advertising platform can't have an AI that goes, oh, wait a second, you just created an ad that looks and sounds and is spelled an awful lot like this PDF converter and then just shut it down now, but then instead they take the money, or am I just being too critical? I, You know, I love that you say that because you're right. I mean, they have so many resources to make sure that this isn't happening, and I'm probably the worst person to talk about about this because of having hacked Google's Nest product. And right. I mean, that was in, when you're on Dr. Case, Phil. Yeah. yeah it, it took them two years to make like take my advice and fix these problems. And in in this case, it could very well be an easy fix. Well, I wanted just to add on to that. By the way, that whole thing was letting people know that their Google Nests have been exposed online. It wasn't Hank spying on people. I feel like we need to tell everybody that. It wasn't Hank just being like, oh, by the way, here's a pizza. It wasn't that. It was you were letting people know that, by the way, your credentials are online. So you were trying to do good things. You just happened to scare the crap out of somebody. The crazy thing there is that Google owns Nest, and they were making it very hard for users to enable two-factor authentication. And... It would have been like five minutes of someone's time to fix that. But same thing here where Google could easily be adding a little bit more um, 
complexity into how they're crawling these ads. And instead of, I'm sure they do have AI implemented, but the way that these these cyber criminals are implementing the the malware advertising is they'll actually fingerprint a user that visits the link. So what I mean by that is if me and you visit the link, we're going to get hit with malware. But if one of Google's random robots uh, or their AI goes to crawl the link, then it'll actually be identified as a robot and or a bot, and it'll be redirected to the real website. So the bot will say, "Yeah, this is this is clean, okay. good advertisement." So they're they're deflecting it all away. Yeah. All right. Uh, Hank the Hacker is here. I'm Shane Hewitt. Now we've heard this. Uh, touch on this quickly. We've heard, you know, how many stories about your corporation wants to watch your phone if you're going to access your corporate email on your personal phone or take your personal laptop to the corporation. I mean, we all know that. Come on, be honest. You look at different websites at home than you do at work. At least I hope you do. Um, although I did have one coworker once. I didn't ever get the message. But the there's a very good reason why that your if your company I would be more concerned that your company is not if they're not putting that filter in, I mean it's terribly inconvenient. Don't get me wrong. But if they're not putting that filter in that you can't do corporate things on your personal devices unless they can watch what you're doing, then I would be more concerned that they're not, as opposed to the ones that say, by the way, we can tell when you're texting your mom if you want to do your corporate email. You should at least have a choice in the matter. But there's some very good reasons why they need to do that. I, I totally agree in having a choice in the matter. And and especially in the days of like bring your own device and remote working. I actually I, I work completely remotely from home. And but the the truth with the cat and mouse game of cyber is there's always new vulnerabilities that are disclosed every day. And especially with this malvertising technique where it could take, you know, just a few clicks to accidentally download some information stealing malware that is now putting not only you and your information, but your company at jeopardy. And so there's always potential for a breach. And and the time between a vulnerability actually being discovered publicly and the hackers exploiting that vulnerability is actually getting lower and lower and lower. And it's lower more now than it ever has before at just 12 days. Wow. So that's why continuous coverage and monitoring and testing is now an absolute must-have. And organizations who are kind of more mature in their cybersecurity journey are already kind of realizing that. Yeah, and it's. I realize it's inconvenient, and you should have a choice, by the way. They, they shouldn't be able to force you. Mm-hmm. I, I take that stand there, too. But at the same time, it's incredibly dangerous because you're on your coffee break. You're like, I'm going to get four tires for the price of one. I'm taking the deal, right? You're on your lunch breaks looking for winter tires. It's going to snow yeah. in southern Alberta, right, overnight into Monday. And so why wouldn't um, why wouldn't you look for winter tires and then you're at work and all of a sudden, you know, Poof, the uh, old servers start smoking in the back room because you did something bad. Hank the Hacker is here. Now let's talk about that. Uh, pen testing. I've always understood that as uh, penetration tests. Uh, do I, I don't know if I even have that right, if the terminology is right, yep. but it's when guys like you, the locksmith, the hackers, try to get into the business. So what do you got for us here? So this is actually something that I get to do now at X10 Technologies, and it's it's something that has always been a hobby of mine, of course, with ethical hacking. But with pen testing, it, it enables us to go in, or, or any company to go in, and make sure with ethical hackers that any potential vulnerabilities or already... Uh, you know, exploited vulnerabilities that exist in a company's infrastructure are tested thoroughly and then they're patched. And after the pen testing engagement, of course, there's there's so many different flavors when you get into that. We do internal pen testing and external where you'll have an assumed breach mentality. And that's where we do it from within the company, from a company-owned device. Uh, and then the external pen test where we do it from outside the company, uh, kind of remotely for whatever can be accessed from the internet. But after this, there's the opportunity for that 
that continuous coverage and monitoring and and the vulnerability testing to make sure that if there are any kind of exploits or or vulnerabilities being hit and and especially if that bring your own device your own laptop that you're using at work if that becomes hit it's not that the company is watching what you're doing on that laptop but how much better is the thought that your company can watch the exposure or the exploitability of that piece that device instead of a hacker being able to watch you and steal your information through that device Mm -hmm. and so that's why it's important to have everything tested once it comes to one of these pen test engagements it's a very scary notion how quickly, I mean, the word network we sort of toss around as just being a thing. It really, we need, really need to remember that network. I mean, a few years ago, Hank, we were chatting about how hackers could access your computer because of your smart speaker, the weakest link in the network chain and stuff like that, right? And it seems to be that not only are they able to get in those ways, I mean, those old school hacks, the technology's caught up a little bit. It's not as easy to get in to some of those pieces like your old ring tests that you were doing in the past. And yet, you know, it's still old school user error. I mean, we joke about it, but there is a reason why that technical support says, is your computer plugged in? Because it's the humans that screw this up. Absolutely. And I love that you mentioned the old ring test because I'm actually coming down to Vancouver for the IT for K-12 uh, conference and I'll be doing my ring demo mm-hmm. um, and kind of showing, you know, the importance in monitoring these things and having a pen test done and doing vulnerability scanning so that you can make sure if one of my devices makes it onto your network, uh, it doesn't make it that far. Uh, this is a ring. It's a it's a piece of hardware that's shaped like a ring that hackers will use, and Hank uses it as demo purposes to basically go up to a phone or somebody in the network, and it'll give them access to get on your phone or through the network. It's fascinating technology. You would never know. Imagine that you, your coworker at work comes up, and your phone's sitting on the desk, and Hank literally puts his hand down on the phone and leans on the desk. Doesn't even have to touch your phone then all of a sudden someone else can get access to that. I mean, that is how wild it gets. All right, Hank, there it is. Another week goes by and another uh, sky is falling. <laughs> I hope people feel safer knowing this stuff. I don't want people to feel like the sky is falling, but this is the gravity of the situation that's going on in the background. So if you have anything that you want to share with us, you can always connect, shiftheads.ca. Hank's on there as well. Tag me, tag Hank, and we'll make sure that we get those questions brought here or just go to itstheshift.ca and send us an email. It comes directly into its own folder here in the shift and we can just take those questions and answer them for you here with Hank. Thanks for being here, brother. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 